You may be seated. Good morning, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, um, we would love for you to fill out one of the visitor cards, and you can drop that in the offering plate in the back or in the front. Um, and uh, if you have prayer requests, there are prayer request cards. Please know that those do get prayed for um, throughout the week. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. If you are visiting, maybe don't have a Bible, aren't familiar, just wanting to check out um, Christianity and Jesus, we are glad that you're here. Grab one of those Bibles in front of you and take it home with you. We would love for you to have God's Word in your house. Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to start with verse 4, and if you have your Bibles, we're going to actually read through verse 7. This is God's Word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let's ask his blessing on his word preached. Will you pray with me? As we have sung these words, we now make it our prayer. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and preach to us good news. Cheer us with your drawing near. And dispense the gloomy clouds of night with your gospel. And make death's dark shadows put to flight in light of your resurrection presence. If you would do this for us, our hearts would be comforted and we would praise you all the more. So we ask this in your name, our reigning Savior. Amen. Well, if you're unfamiliar with the church, um, this is the time of year that we typically celebrate Advent. Advent, children, is just a, a big word for coming. This is the time of year that we celebrate the first coming of Jesus as the Son of God who took on flesh, but then also wait for His second coming when He will bring the new creation, a new heavens and new earth. This is the time of year that we are Waiting Now, children, I think, get this the most because we're waiting for Christmas Day to come. We see the presents under the tree, and we're wondering what will be there for us, and the anticipation almost kills us every day. But that's the sense in which this season is meant to be for us. We see that God has unwrapped the great presence of His presence in His Son, and we wait for the great final unveiling of the coming of the Son of God in flesh. But here's the question that we ask or have been asking over this three-week series on Galatians chapter 4. Why the Son? Why did God the Father send God the Son? Why not the Father take on human flesh and He came into the world? Why didn't He send the Spirit to take on human flesh? Why was it that he sent the Son to take on our humanity. And we saw last week that one of the answers to that is that because He is God the Son, He has a unique relationship with the Father. There are 
one God. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons. And those three persons create a very unique relationship that we almost have no analogy for, that we actually don't have an analogy for in any of our human relationships. As, as the Father eternally sends forth His being into the Son, and the Son and the Father eternally send forth their being into the Spirit, and they share amongst themselves one essence, one God eternally existing. And, the, and so the, the titles of Father, Son, and Spirit aren't just titles that God says, look, I've got something that will help you understand the relationship. He in, takes those titles on because they define the kind of relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have with each other. The Father is a Father because He begets the Son. He sends forth His being. And so when, when God the Son comes into the world, we should say, of course it would be the Son. He's the one who is sent by the Father even before He takes on human flesh. And so He takes on human flesh and carries out the mission of God because that's what a Son does. He raises His hand and He says, God, I'll go. Father, I'll go. I'll do what, you've, what is on your heart. And I'm sure you had this experience last week, and maybe even today, there's a sense in which it's bewildering on many levels to even think about God existing this way. It begins to make sense, and you find your heart being warm to God, and then all of a sudden, a thousand questions flood your mind. And let me encourage you that I think that's a sense of what we should get as confirmation that we are peering when we talk about these things into the very heart of the one true God as he has revealed himself in his word. Look, I said last week there's no analogy, and I said it again today, for the triune God, any analogy always ends up in a heresy that we always have to begin to define these things. This is what God's not like, because we start with our human relationships and work out, well, he's not like that, he's not like this, he's not like that. These are safeguards. But the mystery, the way this blows our mind and begins to make us our heads swirl, should be confirmation that this is not a God of man's own making. A God that humanity created to fulfill some kind of met need in ourself is much more manageable and explainable. In many ways, he's simpler because he's smaller. There, there are there's a sense in which the one true God should be blowing our minds with a level of incomprehensibility. We just know true things about God because he reveals them in his word and we can know him truly. But if it is the one true God, as he has revealed himself in his word, there should be a sense of incomprehensibility. We should be able to say, I, I just can't get my mind all the way around him. And so the first question to our, the first answer to our question, why the Son take on human flesh? Because He is the Son of God who proceeds from the Father. The second answer, the other reason that I want us to see from this text, is not only is He sent from God, the Son of God came to make wrath-cursed sinners into treasured sons of the Father. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, the one who existed before he took on human flesh. God, the father, sent forth his son. Why? Born of a woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the beauty of the gospel. The riches of God's salvation is not simply found in what you are saved from, but what you are saved to. Imagine you had cancer or a chronic disease. Some of that's not something, and some of you have to unfortunately imagine it is what's true in your life. And as a result, it's the wasting disease on your body. And I would ask you, what is better news? You're cancer-free, but the ravages of that disease on your body still are in you. Or that you are saved to a flourishing life. It's not enough just to simply have something awful removed. We need to have something greater added. Both are necessary. We need to be saved from not just the curse of the law, but be saved to the riches of sonship in Jesus. That's the heart of the coming of the Son of God. The glory, this is the glory of the gospel, is not just that God came to earth. That's not the beauty of what we celebrate this time of year. Not just that God came down as if he was a distant deity that somehow needed to come near to us. He is already near. He is always present in all capacities, in all of his fullness. As Paul gathers the, around the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, this is what he says to him. He says, look, God is not far from each of us. Because that's the case, in him we live and move and have our being. The, the glory of Jesus, of God the Son, coming to take on human flesh, is not him coming near. God's present in all of his fullness and all places at all times. God the Son didn't need to take on human flesh to come near or to come down. There is no place that you can ever go to escape the presence of God in all of its fullness. Not pieces here and parts over there and some parts in India and some parts of them in China and some parts of them in Columbia, Tennessee. All God is all present in all of his fullness in all places and at all times. There is no place that we can go that we can escape his presence. The coming of the Son of God was towards the end of adding a new nature to himself that in his body he might do what we could never do for ourselves. It's salvation by addition. Verse 4. God sent forth his son. The one who was fully God took to himself another nature. Born of a woman. Because salvation is always by works. But not by the works of you and me, praise God. It is by the work of the God-man. Born of a woman. He adds to himself, the Son of God adds to himself a new nature. He takes on our flesh. So that he could be, again, 
verse 4 and 5. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Now, if you have your Bibles, look back at verse 10 of chapter 3. Just go back just a little bit. Because this is what Paul had said there. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. God who's perfectly righteous demands perfectly righteous obedience in his law. He has just simply displayed his righteous character and says this is the standard that you have to meet. And if you do not meet it, you are under the curse of sin. My wrath is on you. It has been provoked because no one in this room has perfectly kept the law of God and All who have broken it stand condemned by it. Cursed is anyone, everyone, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, my wife and I were talking about our progressive dinner last night, which is one of the highlights of the year. But we were just talking about how, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult room to navigate, right? Because nobody really likes small talk. So you're kind of trying to figure out how to enter into these conversations and actually get deep with people, right? Because it's like, I really would like to connect with people. And you meet a person, and it's just, how do you move from casual to deep? Well, here's, you know, it's nice to have some tools in your pocket. Here's a surefire way to get past small talk. Ask someone this, how's your guilt and shame? Because there's no one that we're going to come across in any context that that isn't the focus of every ounce of our being. We feel guilty because we've broken God's law. We feel shame because we've failed to measure up. And there's a typical way that we get out of this problem. If you back up to chapter 4 verse 3, just one verse prior, Paul says this. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And here, Paul is grabbing that phrase, elementary principles, and he's he's just using it for shorthand for saying, this is the most basic way that the world works. The most basic way that the world works is, build a record by your efforts, then you'll be rewarded. Almost Every major religion has that as its motto. Build a record by your efforts, then you will be rewarded. Whether it's Buddhism provides a way of life, when you perform well enough, then you're rewarded with nirvana or Islam. If you perform well enough, then you'll be rewarded with paradise or your workplace that provides you with rewards for your performance or even in our interpersonal relationships where we will reward you with ourselves and our approval and maybe the things that I have if you measure up to my standards. It is the most basic way that the world works because the most basic problem that we all have is what are you going to do with your guilt and shame? And the answer in the most elementary way is perform 
then you'll be rewarded. And what Paul says in verse 3 is, you are enslaved to that system. In the worst kind of slavery. You keep performing and you never are rewarded with freedom. Because you can't escape from the curse of the law. The elementary principles, build your record on your efforts, then get rewarded, are absolutely no good in God's economy. You bring that into God's economy, and it's like taking Monopoly money to a, to a closing on a million-dollar house. You're just going to get laughed out of the room. That's not real money. And none of the records that we build are of any value. God just laughs and says, those are of no value. But then notice the contrast in verse 4. It begins, but, that is a contrast, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Don't ever let those words not cause you to gasp in anticipation. But God, here's the bad news. You're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You'll never find freedom that way. But God just should cause us to gasp in anticipation. What is he going to do? Something glorious is coming. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's God's economy. He's the worker. He's the object of the verb. He is the one doing the work. But what did he do? God sent forth his son. The one who eternally proceeds from the Father, who was at the Father's side and shares his very being with the Father, God sent him, born of a woman, adding a new nature, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And we've been all over church history the last couple of weeks. Last week we heard from a fourth century Eastern church father. We've been reciting the Nicene Creed um, from the fourth and fifth centuries both penned in Turkey. Now I'd like to take us a little bit further away in time and space to the 11th century, England, to Anselm, the Bishop of Canterbury, in his book where he asks the question, why was God made man? And he's taking up this question that we've been exploring through Galatians chapter 4. Why was God the Son made man? And Anselm writes this in sort of a conversation between him and one of his students. And, and he, Anselm asks his conversation partner this question, what could you give God to pay the penalty for your sins? Now, his conversation partner picks up the elementary principles of this world, and his answer is this, I could give him repentance, a broken and contrite heart, self-denial, various bodily sufferings, charity, forgiveness to others, and obedience. Those are the things that I could give to God. And Anselm answers back and he says to him, but if you're doing that, you are only giving to God what you owe him anyway. Whether you had ever sinned or not, and so does this pay the debt of your sin? And the conversation partner is just at this point absolutely hopeless. He's feeling the weight of his hopelessness. And he says, if I already owed God all of myself and all of my powers even before I sinned, 
I have nothing left to give him for my sin. I see no way of escape. And Anselm replies, this means that no one but God can make satisfaction for sins because only God doesn't owe himself anything. And then he goes on. But no one other than man ought to do it. Otherwise, man does not make satisfaction for sins. And here's God's answer to that tension. But God, in the fullness of time, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law, so that we might receive adoptions as son. The addition of another nature as the son of God takes on our humanity was so that he might do in his body what none of us could ever do in our body. And thus, without ceasing to be God the Son, he adds to himself a new nature so that for then, now, and forevermore, he is fully God and fully man. This is what we've confessed, that the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down. And he became incarnate, had flesh put to him by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. That's the profound mystery of Jesus. Fully God and fully man. It's a tension that we just should not resolve, but should let sit in glorious comfort on our hearts. H.R. Bramley, who probably never sung this hymn, wrote this hymn, The Great God of Heaven Has Come Down to Earth. It's not the catchiest title that you'll ever hear. <clears throat> that probably won't make it on the top ten charts. But it captures, he captures the mystery of this as only poetry can do he says this is this is the hymn these are a few lines just feel the weight of both of these fully god fully man the great god of heaven is come down to earth his mother a virgin and sinless his birth the father eternal his father alone he sleeps in the manger he reigns on the throne a babe on the breast of a maiden he lies, yet sits with the Father on high in the skies. Before him their faces the seraphim hide, while Joseph stands waiting, unscared by his side. Oh, wonder of wonders, which none can unfold. The Ancient of Days is an hour or two old. The maker of all things is made of the earth. Man is worshipped by angels and God comes to birth. And he did that to redeem those who were under the curse 
of the law. Because only the God-man could bear the full weight of the curse of God's wrath. Because as the Son of God and the Son of Man, His life was the indestructible life of the Son of God. He alone could bear the wrath of God in all of its fullness because He alone was God. And he bore it in his body because that body was married to the indestructible life of the Son of God. Because as God, he had life in himself, just as the Father has life in himself. The one who is fully God and fully man could only bear the infinite, eternal wrath of God for all the sins of all his people for all time. The wrath of God has to be born in the body of a man, but it also must be born by the only man who had the indestructible life as the Son of God. God sent forth his Son to save sinners who are under his curse. And so he's put his own Son under the curse of the law so that we could become sons of God. Verse 7. There's a sense in which we need to believe that by adding to himself a new nature and bearing our sins in his body, Jesus has now raised a greater glory. But he didn't just do that. See, see the son who proceeds from the father and returns to the father. In the very essence of his being when he is sent out by the father. Returns to the father gathering for himself a new people. In his body. So that where he is in his body as our representative. We are with him. You see if you're in Jesus. You are his great reward. And now his reward is your reward. Because if he became like you to bear the curse of your sins, he's also become like you so that you might become like him in his sonship. You hear what he prays in John 17? Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And you see that just knocks out another foundation of the economy of the world. You work then you get rewarded. It's just knocked out by the work of the Son. Verse 7. So... If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Not just any son, a son in the Son of God. And if a son, then an heir through God. Pray, just wow. Praise be to God, who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
and built an entire new economy of grace. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, it is just another clear reminder that what we have taken is Jesus himself. And what we have been given is the Son of God and the Son of Man who reigns. And so we pray that as we partake of this ordinary bread and ordinary wine, that you would cause our hearts to feed again by your Spirit and with your power on the one alone who is Son of God and Son of Man. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.